Section 37 of The Rainbow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Rainbow by D. H. Lawrence. Chapter 13, Part 1. The Man's World. Ursula came back to Cossethay to fight with her mother. Her school days were over. She had passed the matriculation examination. Now she came home to face that empty period between school and possible marriage. At first she thought it would be just like holidays all the time. She would feel just free. Her soul was in chaos, blinded suffering, maimed. She had no will left to think about herself. For a time she must just lapse. But very shortly she found herself up against her mother. Her mother had, at this time, the power to irritate and madden the girl continuously. There were already seven children, yet Mrs. Brangwen was again with child, the ninth she had born. One had died of diphtheria in infancy. Even this fact of her mother's pregnancy enraged the eldest girl. Mrs. Brangwen was so complacent, so utterly fulfilled in her breeding. She would not have the existence at all of anything but the immediate, physical, common things. Ursula, inflamed in soul, was suffering all the anguish of youth's reaching for some unknown ordeal that it can't grasp, can't even distinguish or conceive. Maddened, she was fighting all the darkness she was up against, and part of this darkness was her mother. To limit, as her mother did, everything to the ring of physical considerations, and complacently to reject the reality of anything else, was horrible. Not a thing did Mrs. Brangwen care about, but the children, the house, and a little local gossip. And she would not be touched. She would let nothing else live near her. She went about, big with child, slovenly, easy, having a certain lax dignity, taking her own time, pleasing herself, always, always doing things for the children, and feeling that she thereby fulfilled the whole of womanhood. This long trance of complacent childbearing had kept her young and undeveloped. She was scarcely a day older than when Gudrun was born. All these years nothing had happened save the coming of the children. Nothing had mattered but the bodies of her babies. As her children came into consciousness, as they began to suffer their own fulfillment, she cast them off, but she remained dominant in the house. Brangwen continued in a kind of rich drowse of physical heat in connection with his wife. They were neither of them quite personal, quite defined as individuals. So much were they pervaded by the physical heat of breeding and rearing their young. How Ursula resented it, how she fought against the close, physical, limited life of herded domesticity. Calm, placid, unshakable as ever, Mrs. Brangwen went about in her dominance of physical maternity. There were battles, Ursula would fight for the things that mattered to her. She would have the children less rude and tyrannical. She would have a place in the house. But her mother pulled her down, pulled her down. With all the cunning instinct of a breeding animal, Mrs. Brangwen ridiculed and held cheap Ursula's passions, her ideas, her pronunciations. Ursula would try to insist, in her own home, on the right of women to take equal place with men in the field of action and work. Aye, said the mother, there's a good crop of stockings lying ripe for mending. Let that be your field of action. 
Ursula disliked mending stockings, and this retort maddened her. She hated her mother bitterly. After a few weeks of enforced domestic life, she had had enough of her home. The commonness, the triviality, the immediate meaninglessness of it all drove her to frenzy. She talked and stormed ideas. She corrected and nagged at the children. She turned her back in silent contempt on her breeding mother, who treated her with supercilious indifference, as if she were a pretentious child not to be taken seriously. Brangwen was sometimes dragged into the trouble. He loved Ursula, therefore he always had a sense of shame, almost of betrayal, when he turned on her. So he turned fiercely and scathingly, and with a wholesale brutality that made Ursula go white, mute, and numb. Her feelings seemed to be becoming deadened in her, her temper hard and cold. Brangwen himself was in one of his states of flux. After all these years, he began to see a loophole of freedom. For twenty years he had gone on at this office as a draftsman, doing work in which he had no interest because it seemed his allotted work. The growing up of his daughters, their developing rejection of old forms, set him also free. He was a man of ceaseless activity. Blindly, like a mole, he pushed his way out of the earth that covered him, working always away from the physical element in which his life was captured. Slowly, blindly, gropingly, with what initiative was left to him, he made his way towards individual expression and individual form. At last, after twenty years, he came back to his wood carving, almost to the point where he had left off his Adam and Eve panel when he was courting. But now he had knowledge and skill without vision. He saw the puerility of his young conceptions. He saw the unreal world in which they had been conceived. He now had a new strength in his sense of reality. He felt as if he were real, as if he handled real things. He had worked for many years at Cassethay, building the organ for the church, restoring the woodwork, gradually coming to a knowledge of beauty in the plain labors. Now he wanted again to carve things that were utterances of himself. But he could not quite hitch on. Always he was too busy, too uncertain, confused. Wavering, he began to study modeling. To his surprise, he found he could do it. Modeling in clay, in plaster, he produced beautiful reproductions, really beautiful. Then he set to to make a head of Ursula, in high relief, in the Donatello manner. In his first passion, he got a beautiful suggestion of his desire. But the pitch of concentration would not come. With a little ash in his mouth, he gave up. He continued to copy, or to make designs by selecting motives from classic stuff. He loved the Della Robbia and Donatello as he had loved Fra Angelico when he was a young man. His work had some of the freshness, the naive alertness of the early Italians, but it was only a reproduction. Having reached his limit in modeling, he turned to painting, but he tried watercolor painting after the manner of any other amateur. He got his results, but was not much interested. After one or two drawings of his beloved church, which had the same alertness as his modeling, he seemed to be incongruous with the modern atmospheric way of painting, so that his church tower stood up, really stood and asserted its standing, but was ashamed of its own lack of meaning. He turned away again. He took up jewelry, read Benvenuto Cellini, poured over reproductions of ornament, and began to make pendants in silver and pearl and matrix. The first things he did, in his start of discovery, 
were really beautiful. Those later were more imitative. But, starting with his wife, he made a pendant each for all his womenfolk. Then he made rings and bracelets. Then he took up beaten and chiseled metalwork. When Ursula left school, he was making a silver bowl of lovely shape. How he delighted in it, almost lusted after it. All this time, his only connection with the real outer world was through his winter evening classes, which brought him into contact with state education. About all the rest, he was oblivious, and entirely indifferent, even about the war. The nation did not exist to him. He was in a private retreat of his own, but had neither nationality nor any great adherent. Ursula watched the newspapers, vaguely, concerning the war in South Africa, they made her miserable, and she tried to have as little to do with them as possible. But Skrebensky was out there. He sent her an occasional postcard. But it was as if she were a blank wall in his direction, without windows or outgoing. She adhered to the Skrebensky of her memory. Her love for Winifred Inger wrenched her life, as it seemed, from the roots and native soil where Skrebensky had belonged to it, and she was aridly transplanted. He was really only a memory. She revived his memory with strange passion, after the departure of Winifred. He was to her almost the symbol of her real life. It was as if, through him, in him, she might return to her own self, which she was before she had loved Winifred, before this deadness had come upon her, this pitiless transplanting. But even her memories were the work of her imagination. She dreamed of him and her as they had been together. She could not dream of him progressively, of what he was doing now, of what relation he would have to her now. Only sometimes she wept to think how cruelly she had suffered when he left her. Ah, how she had suffered. She remembered what she had written in her diary. If I were the moon, I know where I would fall down. Ah, it was a dull agony to her to remember what she had been then. For it was remembering a dead self. All that was dead after Winifred... She knew the corpse of her young, loving self. She knew its grave. And the young, living self she mourned for had scarcely existed. It was the creature of her imagination. Deep within her a cold despair remained unchanging and unchanged. No one would love her now. She would love no one. The body of love was killed in her after Winifred. There was something of the corpse in her. She would live. She would go on. But she would have no lovers. No lover would want her any more. She herself would want no lover. The vividest little flame of desire was extinct in her forever. The tiny, vivid germ that contained the bud of her real self, her real love, was killed. She would go on growing as a plant. She would do her best to produce her minor flowers. But her leading flower was dead before it was born. All her growth was the conveying of the corpse of hope. The miserable weeks went on, in the pokey house crammed with children. What was her life? A sordid, formless, disintegrated nothing. Ursula Brangwen, a person without worth or importance, living in the mean village of Cossethay, within the sordid scope of Ilkeston. Ursula Brangwen, at seventeen, worthless and unvalued, neither wanted nor needed by anybody, and conscious herself of her own dead value. It would not bear thinking of. But still her dogged pride held its own. She might be defiled. She might be a corpse that should never be loved. 
She might be a core, rotten stalk living upon the food that others provided. Yet she would give in to nobody. Gradually she became conscious that she could not go on living at home as she was doing, without place or meaning or worth. The very children that went to school held her uselessness in contempt. She must do something. Her father said she had plenty to do to help her mother. From her parents, she would never get more than a hit in the face. She was not a practical person. She thought of wild things, of running away and becoming a domestic servant, of asking some man to take her. She wrote to the mistress of the high school for advice. I cannot see very clearly what you should do, Ursula, came the reply, unless you are willing to become an elementary school teacher. You have matriculated, and that qualifies you to take a post as an uncertificated teacher in any school at a salary of about 50 pounds a year. I cannot tell you how deeply I sympathize with you in your desire to do something. You will learn that mankind is a great body of which you are one useful member. You will take your own place at the great task which humanity is trying to fulfill. That will give you a satisfaction and a self-respect which nothing else could give. Ursula's heart sank. It was a cold, dreary satisfaction to think of. Yet her cold will acquiesced. This was what she wanted. You have an emotional nature, the letter went on. A quick, natural response. If only you could learn patience and self-discipline. I do not see why you should not make a good teacher. The least you can do is try. You need only serve a year, or perhaps two years, as an uncertificated teacher. Then you would go to one of the training colleges, where I hope you would take your degree. I most strongly urge and advise you to keep up your studies, always with the intention of taking a degree. That will give you a qualification and a position in the world, and will give you more scope to choose your own way. I shall be proud to see one of my girls win her own economical independence, which means so much more than it seems. I shall be glad indeed to know that one more of my girls has provided for herself the means of freedom to choose for herself. It all sounded grim and desperate. Ursula rather hated it. But her mother's contempt and her father's harshness had made her raw at the quick. She knew the ignominy of being a hanger-on. She felt the festering thorn of her mother's animal estimation. At length she had to speak. Hard and shut down and silent within herself, she slipped out one evening to the workshed. She heard the tap-tap-tap of the hammer upon the metal. Her father lifted his head as the door opened. His face was ready and bright with instinct as when he was a youth. His black mustache was cut close over his wide mouth. His black hair was fine and close as ever. But there was about him an abstraction, a sort of instrumental detachment from human things. He was a worker. He watched his daughter's hard, expressionless face. A hot anger came over his breast and belly. What now? he said. Can't I? she answered, looking aside, not looking at him. Can't I go out to work? Go out to work? What for? His voice was so strong and ready and vibrant. It irritated her. I want some other life than this. A flash of strong rage arrested all his blood for a moment. Some other life? He repeated. Why, what other life do you want? She hesitated. Something else besides housework and hanging about. And I want to earn something. 
Her curious, brutal hardness of speech and the fierce invincibility of her youth, which ignored him, made him also harden with anger. And how do you think you're going to earn anything? He asked. I can become a teacher. I'm qualified by my matric. He wished her matric in hell. And how much are you qualified to earn by your matric? He asked, jeering. Fifty pounds a year, she said. He was silent, his power taken out of his hand. He had always hugged a secret pride in the fact that his daughters need not go out to work. With his wife's money and his own, they had four hundred a year. They could draw on the capital if need be later on. He was not afraid for his old age. His daughters might be ladies. Fifty pounds a year was a pound a week, which was enough for her to live on independently. And what sort of a teacher do you think you'd make? You haven't the patience of a jackknot with your own brothers and sisters, let alone with a class of children. And I thought you didn't like dirty board school brats. They're not all dirty. You'd find they're not all clean. There was silence in the workshop. The lamplight fell on the burned silver bowl that lay between him, on mallet and furnace and chisel. Brangwen stood with a queer, cat-like light on his face, almost like a smile. But it was no smile. Can I try? She said. You can do what the deuce you like and go where you like. Her face was fixed and expressionless and indifferent. It always sent him to a pitch of frenzy to see it like that. He kept perfectly still. Cold, without any betrayal of feeling, she turned and left the shed. He worked on, with all his nerves jangled. Then he had to put down his tools and go into the house. In a bitter tone of anger and contempt, he told his wife. Ursula was present. There was a brief altercation, closed by Mrs. Brangwen's saying, in a tone of biting superiority and indifference. Let her find out what it's like. She'll soon have had enough. The matter was left there, but Ursula considered herself free to act. For some days, she made no move. She was reluctant to take the cruel step of finding work, for she shrank with extreme sensitiveness and shyness from new contact, new situations. Then at length, a sort of doggedness drove her. Her soul was full of bitterness. She went to the free library in Ilkeston, copied out addresses from the schoolmistress, and wrote for application forms. After two days, she rose early to meet the postman. As she expected, there were three long envelopes. Her heart beat painfully as she went up with them to her bedroom. Her fingers trembled. She could hardly force herself to look at the long official forms she had to fill in. The whole thing was so cruel, so impersonal. Yet it must be done. Name. Surname first. In a trembling hand, she wrote, Bringwin, Ursula. Age and date of birth. After a long time considering, she filled in that line. Qualifications, with date of examination. With a little pride, she wrote, London matriculation examination. Previous experience and where obtained. Her heart sank as she wrote, none. Still, there was much to answer. It took her two hours to fill in the three forms. Then she had to copy her testimonials from her headmistress and from the clergyman. At last, however, it was finished. She had sealed the three long envelopes. 
In the afternoon, she went down to Ilkeston to post them. She said nothing of it all to her parents. As she stamped her long letters and put them into the box at the main post office, she felt as if already she was out of the reach of her father and mother, as if she had connected herself with the outer, greater world of activity, the man-made world. As she returned home, she dreamed again in her own fashion her old, gorgeous dreams. One of her applications was to Gillingham, in Kent, one to Kingston-on-Thames, and one to Swanwick in Derbyshire. Gillingham was such a lovely name, and Kent was the Garden of England, so that, in Gillingham, an old, old village by the Hopfields, where the sun shone softly, she came out of school in the afternoon into the shadow of the plane trees by the gate and turned down the sleepy road towards the cottage where cornflowers poked their blue heads through the old wooden fence and flax stood built up of blossom beside the path. A delicate, silver-haired lady rose with delicate, ivory hands uplifted as Ursula entered the room and... Oh, my dear, what do you think? What is it, Mrs. Wetherall? Frederick had come home. Nay, his manly step was heard on the stair. She saw his strong boots, his blue trousers, his uniformed figure, and then his face, clean and keen as an eagle's. And his eyes lit up with the glamour of strange seas. Ah, strange seas that had woven through his soul as he descended into the kitchen. This dream, with its amplifications lasted her a mile of walking. Then she went to Kingston-on-Thames. Kingston-on-Thames was an old historic place, just south of London. There lived the well-born dignified souls who belonged to the metropolis, but who loved peace. There she met a wonderful family of girls living in a large old Queen Anne house, whose lawns sloped to the river, and in an atmosphere of stately peace, she found herself among her soul's intimates. They loved her as sisters. They shared with her all noble thoughts. She was happy again. In her musings, she spread her poor, clipped wings and flew into the pure Empyrean. Day followed day. She did not speak to her parents. Then came the return of her testimonials from Gillingham. She was not wanted, neither at Swanwick. The bitterness of rejection followed the sweets of hope. Her bright feathers were in the dust again. Then, suddenly, after a fortnight, came an intimation from Kingston-on-Thames. She was to appear at the education office of that town on the following Thursday for an interview with the committee. Her heart stood still. She knew she would make the committee accept her. Now she was afraid, now that her removal was imminent. Her heart quivered with fear and reluctance, but underneath her purpose was fixed. She passed shadowily through the day, Unwilling to tell her news to her mother, waiting for her father, suspense and fear were strong upon her. She dreaded going to Kingston. Her easy dreams disappeared from the grasp of reality. And yet, as the afternoon wore away, the sweetness of the dream returned again. Kingston-on-Thames, there was such sound of dignity to her. The shadow of history and the glamour of stately progress enveloped her. The palaces would be old and darkened, the place of kings obscured. Yet it was a place of kings for her, Richard and Henry and Wolsey and Queen Elizabeth. She divined great lawns with noble trees, and terraces whose steps the water washed softly, where the swans sometimes came to earth. 
Still she must see the stately, gorgeous barge of the queen float down, the crimson carpet put upon the landing stairs, the gentlemen in their purple velvet cloaks, bareheaded, standing in the sunshine grouped on either side waiting. Sweet Thames, run softly till I end my song. End of section 37 Recording by Scarbo.